I'm Eddie, and you are listening to the fourth episode of Switchboard, the radio show all about stories in Cambridge. This week's show is called Collecting Past and Present, but unfortunately the studio did not record the first two minutes of the broadcast. So you will hear from this week's presenters Caroline and Frida after our first package, in which Caroline and I went to the University Library to check out a new exhibition to mark the centenary of women's suffrage. The first voice you'll hear belongs to Chris Burgess, the UL's Exhibitions Programs Manager. This is um, a poster uh, by a Dutch artist called Winter, and um, it, he won a competition by an organisation called the Artist Suffrage League. So they were kind of didn't really know what designs they wanted for posters, so they kind of held competitions. What's interesting about it is if you look at most of these poster posters, um, the women who demand the vote have a kind of they're active in it. They're actively demanding the vote. With this poster, we asked to give votes for women because it will help her if that makes sense so she doesn't have as much agency uh, she is um, a woman who works at home she's like a piece worker and she's a seamstress so she's sat at her sewing machine one head in hand um, kind of resting she's clearly very tired there's no curtains um, kind of sagging piece of cloth covering the window um, working on a, a singer sewing machine which museums are full of um, and yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite an interesting image in that respect. It's a very different type of image. We're asked to vote for workers. There's a kind of um, a narrative within the uh, suffrage movement about whether women should have votes because a vote would make you be able to make your life better if you had the vote, or whether you should have a, have the vote um, because it's your right to vote as a kind of adult human taxpaying being, basically. Um, and so this idea of votes for workers, it kind of plays into a... Um, this is a poster. It's interesting because is it aimed at working class people or is it aimed to you have to do it on behalf of working class people? Um, and what, what have we got in this cabinet? So these are these were um, is an exhibition as part of uh, the, the suffrage collection here at the uh, UL. This was curated by uh, uh, students from the history faculty, um, and it is from um, a woman called Caroline Ridding who was a student at Girton. She's one of the very first uh, women to be employed by the University Library, I think, in about 1908, something like that. She was a Sanskrit scholar, so she's one of the first women to be a Sanskrit scholar, we think, as well. Um, and she was um, a, a active in an organisation called the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, um, which was the uh, kind of constitutional... Um, part of the suffrage movement the other organisation was called the Women's Social and Political Union which was famously founded by Mrs Pankhurst in Manchester um, which was more militant and in this uh, case we have to do with marches um, uh, as part of the suffrage movement there were lots of marches to London to demand votes for women uh, and we, this includes a programme of banners that was carried at a march in 1908 including the banner that was produced for the alumni of Girton and Newnham Colleges and so we have an idea about uh, the, the uh, Cambridge kind of suffrage movement, but also the kind of material and the idea and the, um, the methods that uh, the suffrage movement went to to demand votes for women. Uh, obviously, this year is it's the hundredth anniversary of some women getting the parliamentary vote, uh, which was the act was passed in February 1918, um, and women over the age of 30 who met a property qualification could vote for the first time. A number of women active at the university at the time would not have received the vote because they weren't 30 years of old, uh, age and they didn't receive the vote but it's the 100th anniversary so there's lots of big celebrations um, happening at the time at the moment.
I caught up with historical researcher Elizabeth Crawford, who gave a talk on the suffrage posters at the UL, to learn more about the artists behind them. Yes, uh, a lot of them uh, had very interesting backgrounds. I mean, I think a lot of them struggled, really. Um, they, they had to earn their own livings. Uh, quite a few of them, uh, I mean, they were middle-class women, and they trained at the Slade, say, but their fathers had either lost their money or uh, died and, uh, when they were young, and so they've had to make the way in the world. And um, they've obviously managed to, to do it. I mean, they leave leave reasonable amounts of money in their, in their wills, but uh, it, it's very difficult to track down the artworks. Um, they don't come up for auction very often. Um, there's one uh, interesting, one woman particularly that's interesting called Agnes Hope Joseph. She just went under the name of Hope Joseph, and she was the founder of um, uh, one of the, There were two main artist societies, one was called the Artist Suffrage League, another was called the Suffrage Atelier. And she was one of the founders of the Suffrage Atelier. And uh, she trained uh, at the Slade and in uh, Paris. And uh, then uh, in Cornwall with Stanhope Stan Forbes, I mean, he was a leading artist of the day and had a school there, um, Brian Newlin. And so she had a really good um, background um, in, uh, in art. And her, her pictures do, um, paintings do occasionally come up for auction now. Um, she and her, her quite a number of siblings she had um, uh, were orphaned. Uh, I mean, their father died and then their mother died when well, she was still at art school training. Um, and um, she then uh, founded this... Um, the suffrage atelier um, with a, a friend uh, called Edith Willis and uh, that was a, a really interesting group. They were mainly um, doing very um, uh, sort of strong images, um, simple colours, strong images, but rather um, sort of arts and crafts uh, thing, not fine, not fine art at all, even though she trained at the Slade. Um, and uh, they ha they're very effective. Uh, they're just very roughly done. They uh, trained other women, I mean, who weren't professional artists, uh, to um, to how to do. Um, they trained them how to do printing, and uh, it must have been a, a very interesting uh, group uh, to actually uh, be part of. Even though women uh, had uh, got the vote for on at local level, I mean, relatively early, um, it was still this bastion of the parliamentary vote that men just weren't going to give up. It's just very interesting how how they managed to uh, engineer themselves into the political machine. Or, you know, it was a bit of a hop and a jump at the end. That was Chris Burgess, Exhibitions Programme Manager from the UL, and historical researcher Elizabeth Crawford. And Eddie and I spoke to them earlier this week to learn more about the collection of women's suffrage art from the UL. So go and check that out, definitely, if you're passing that way through. You're listening to Switchboard on CAMFM 97.2. Today it's me, Caroline, and Frida in the studio. Hi. This is Frida, and I'd like to say that please do get in touch with us during the show if you have anything that you want to comment on at studio at camfm.com.uk. Exactly. We want to hear 
any of your thoughts, if you've got any interesting stories about collections, let us know. Next up, we have an interview with Marcel and Blanca. So they did a really interesting challenge that they'll tell you a little bit about. And it's all about becoming more aware of the waste that we create and consume. An initiative going on back home that they were doing this, they were trying to raise awareness amongst different families and they were asking the families to keep their waste for a month without mm -hmm. doing anything different. And then they were doing a picture of the families with all their waste. And then the same, the next month, uh, making, uh, well, having the families do some efforts in order to reduce their waste. And then you could compare the two pictures. And it was very nice and it was like kind of a story and everything. So we saw the two pictures and we were like, oh my God, still the one of the, after being uh, aware, they still generate a lot of waste. And we were like, we really don't generate any waste. So why not just do it and do it as a Facebook challenge so it reaches more people. Everything that we uh, buy, we try to uh, reuse the, the pot. So when we go to buy uh, soap, for example, we bring our own pot like all, all these kind of different things. Mm -hmm. So it's always thinking before we do the stuff. Yeah, we receive a lot of a lot of friends coming back to us saying it was so inspirational and that they were they were just so inspired by the challenge that they were actually gonna take take it up and do it do it themselves and think more carefully what they what they consume, what what waste they produce. It's actually not difficult, that's what we want to to say especially it's money saving it's time saving it's easy it's simple you are really uh, responsible of your action it's like being responsible really i think it's important to stress here that this waste produ production system that we have here it's just one more of all of the symptoms of this system that we have created here in the west where we just live above our capacities and we put all the burden into the developing countries uh, we do it in many in many different parts of, of our society, but waste is a huge example though that here we produce huge amounts of waste just for consuming things that we just just use once and then we send the waste to China, we send the waste to to Africa for them to deal with it, for them to deal with the consequences of our of our greed to consume more and more. So I think it's a systematic problem and it's part of this neocolonialistic system that we still keep doing and living as usual, business as usual, but we're still putting all this environmental and social burden to other places in the world. So it's very important that we all reduce waste in our daily lives, but it's as important and as capital to do political action to reduce systemic waste. So you say you go and like get soap and put things in containers. Are there any other good tips people can use if they want to try and reduce their level of waste? I think there's like the most important tip is be critical and be conscious and think twice before you do things. That was Marcel and Blanca on their waste challenge to try and collect their waste and encourage people to reduce the waste that they produce. A really inspiring story there. Um, a couple of days ago, uh, Eddie and I talked to Dr. Lauren Gardiner which is the curator of the Cambridge University Herbarium. 
which is located at the Sainsbury Laboratory, very near the Botanical Gardens. And this is her passionate testimony of what it's like to uh, be the creator of one of the great herbariums in England. This is Henslow. Um, so John Stevens Henslow was the, the real founder of this herbarium. He was the professor of botany um, in the early 1800s and he was Darwin's tutor. And so they often say that without Henslow there would have been no Darwin. We, we, would, we wouldn't know of Darwin. He became... I think it's the third professor of botany and he inherited a, a collection of dried pressed plants which were collected in the 1700s but they were, they were rotten and mouldering and he remounted them all himself onto new sheets of paper and that formed the basis of this herbarium and then he would have been teaching Darwin with those specimens and then when Captain Fitzroy contacted Henslow to ask him if he would go on the voyage of the Beagle it was Henslow who suggested one of his students. In fact, he suggested another student first. Not a lot of people know that, but <laughs> really? that student couldn't make it. So when Darwin was on the Beagle, he's going to these extraordinary places people haven't collected natural history specimens in before. And he's, he's observing the variation. And he was sending his specimens back to England. And he was sending particularly plants back to Henslow. So we have, hen uh, we have Darwin's specimens from the Beagle and it's nearly a thousand sheets of paper with plants on it. About nearly two and a half thousand plants on those sheets. And it was Henslow who was writing backs and forwards to Darwin. And you can see in the correspondence they're talking about these specimens and they're talking about the things that Darwin's observing. And that's when Darwin was coming up with the theories of why are things different in different places. This is a specimen of Darwin's from the Galapagos. Um, and this is one which I often show people um, because it has an interesting, bizarre conservation story behind it as well. So this is um, a cucurbitaceae plant. So it's in the cucumber family. And it's one big leaf on a stem with little tendrils. So this is how the, the plant climbs and clambers, attaches itself to things, and then it's got a couple of inflorescences with flowers, and it's got a little packet of seeds, little fruits and seeds. Now the, the sad thing about this is it's never been seen again since. No one's found this specimen, this species, ever again. And bizarrely, it was written at the time, Darwin wrote in his notebooks, that it was in great beds injurious to vegetation. He described it scrambling over all the other vegetation on the island. Uh, this is Charles Island um, in the Galapagos. And the theory is when man came onto that island and started farming and bringing goats. And they were destroying the local vegetation in the process. So this is the only record of this, that this species ever existed. There's nothing else. Half of the approximately 1.1 million specimens is from the rest of the world. And that material is very poorly studied. Uh, there's material there that came in 175 years ago and has never been studied. And it is full of absolute gems. So I'm going to show you some of those now. I can show you. Oh, this, 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 this is kind of cool. So just as an example of how there are these undiscovered treasures in this collection. This was a set of 
previously undiscovered treasures that we nobody knew that we had um, that were found um, I think it's 2011, around 2010, 2011, when the herbarium was moved from down in sight to here, a researcher found a whole series of specimens, it's about 40 specimens, which were collected by Alfred Russell Wallace, who was the other scientist who published the theory of natural selection and evolution with Darwin. And very few collections have any Wallace plant material. Wallace had to pay his way around the world and he was collecting uh, specimens which he would send back to London which was sold by an agent to the Victorian collectors at the time, people who were collecting things like birds of paradise, interesting jeweled beetles, um, interesting things from around the world. All of these individuals have extraordinary stories behind them. You know, there, there's there's lots of gruesome stories. They're these collectors who were collecting on behalf of nurseries in particular, because each nursery wanted the new big thing, they were in competition. So they would be going to sites and trying to collect things before their competitors got there. And if they couldn't carry everything that, that they wanted, they would destroy things that were left. They would burn areas. They would destroy the plants that they couldn't take with them so that no one else could get them. They would destroy each other's collections. They were people who would go into places where Westerners hadn't been. Um, they were regarded with a suspicion in lots of places, of course. In some places, they were quite politically sensitive areas. Some of the collectors who were going to places like China, they, they were killed on expeditions by local people, by the government, by the military, because they were not supposed to be in some of those places. And it's grim. I mean, it's so lots of people, when I would go on an expedition, if I go to an expedition to Madagascar or to New Guinea, which I have done previously, um, they think you're on holiday, and it's very much not. It's a couple of the weeks in the field with no electricity, no running water, no water in some cases, limited amount to drink, and that's it. Um, and, um, yeah, you're roughing it, and you're making the best of what you've got. But these guys were out there for years in completely alien territory, learning the language, learning the culture, hiring people to help them. Um, but diseases, malaria, infections could easily kill you. Um, I want to reinvigorate the collection, get people using it, get, get people knowing about the collection, because a lot of people don't have a clue that it's even here, even within the departments. At the moment, we're pretty invisible outside of this building, outside of this room even. People don't know we're here. So that was Dr. Lauren Gardiner from the uh, Cambridge University Herbarium. And she's very keen to get volunteers, so please do get in touch with her if you find that interesting. You're listening to Switchboard on CAMFM 97.2. If you want to get in touch with us in the studio, please drop us a line at studio at camfm.co.uk. Coming up now, Eddie and Raphael took a trip to the UL to find out a little bit more about what goes on behind the scenes of that massive, sort of, big building of collections. So we're on the front steps as we speak, 
during the First World War, it was actually the site of a, uh, the first Eastern General Field Hospital, and something like 70,000 casualties were treated between 1914 and 1918 in um, a great tented construction here. But uh, the, the university decided it wanted to build the library in about 1928 and, it, and secured a benefactor from John D. Rockefeller Jr. to pay for it. The architect was a gentleman named Giles Gilbert Scott, uh, who was the third generation of architects in his family. Giles Gilbert Scott is notable also for building the Liverpool Anglican Cathedral and um, Tate Modern on Bankside. Where, where are we going through now? So we're stood outside the boiler house at the moment. The boiler house is immediately underneath the library tower. Um, originally, we had coal-fired boilers down there from the 1930s. Um, and uh, back in the day, the, the, the library would have been heated by coal and there would have been stokers down there as if they were on a cruise ship or ocean liner or something, firing coal into the boilers. Yeah, so you can hear the boilers humming away. We're in a fairly typical boiler room, plant room at the moment with great big pipes running everywhere and big green arrows on things to indicate directions of airflow and water flow. Could you specify a room and say, I want this to be heated to this temperature? And to some extent, essentially the boilers and some of the pipe were renewed, but if you imagine it was a bit like doing a heart transplant. You can do a heart transplant, but you can't take out an old person's veins. You know, basically, it's a pretty constant task, running backwards and forwards, trimming valves here, there and everywhere, to try and make sure that, that the heating levels are appropriate in the building. And, uh, and it is a difficult task, because you can imagine uh, the climate outside is constant. Yeah, so um, we've emerged from the din of the boiler house into the relative serenity of what we call the bins area. So we're on the ground floor here now, um, just behind the donut, as we refer to it, of the entrance hall. Um, what happens here is the books come back over the entrance hall desk uh, onto these carts that are arranged in front of us, and then we've got a very extensive team of fetchers whose job is to go and put these back on the shelves correctly. It's never intended that readers reshelves their own books. Because imagine with a, if you've got eight million items in your collection, if someone puts something back in the wrong place, even if it's only a couple of shelves wrong, it could be gone forever. What we'll do now is we'll pop into the perimeter room, where uh, you get a neat illustration of the fact that a lot, an organisation like our own is constantly in the jaws of um, this battle for space, basically. So we're in a closed book storage area here that we refer to as one of our perimeter rooms. I, I think I'm right in saying that about 60% of our collection is in closed storage and 40% on open stacks. And I believe I'm right in saying that of the six legal deposit libraries, uh, we store more on open stacks than uh, any of the other five. So, yeah, because we take in approximately 8,000 items um, a week that we're expected to accommodate in perpetuity. Uh, and the way the Legal Deposit Act works, the essence of it, is that if you sign up to be a Legal Deposit Library, if you're one of the original six, you have to take everything. It's not that you get offered every book that's published, it is that you must accommodate every book that's published. So, yeah, it doesn't matter whether it's Dan Brown or Mary Beard, we have to look after it. Doors opening. And the fourth floor is referred to by some people in my team as the M25. For anyone who uses, this is a good tip for anyone who's a user of the university library, the fourth floor is the only bit of a library where you can do a complete circuit around the building, basically.
So we've got an air handling unit hissing away in the background. Uh, our most precious materials are kept in chambers where we aim to maintain stable temperature and relative humidity. So in order to be able to maintain the perfect conditions for books, we have to be, to be able to control everything independently. If they are allowed to uh, take on water and then release water if the humidity goes up and down, or if the temperature goes up and down and they expand and contract, they're then subject to me mechanical forces minute mechanical forces but over hundreds of years and you have to bear in mind it's our mission to look after this stuff forever essentially it's not like we take a book in and then have a shelf date where we're going to determine we chuck it out our job is to try and ensure that this stuff the library's been around for over 600 years now and our job is to try and ensure that it's still here 600 years from now so over 600 years those tiny minute mechanical forces could reduce a book um, to dust basically we can never leave the building unattended for a period of more than 24 hours without coming in and doing uh, checks here. So I have come in on Boxing Day or Christmas Day in the past here to go around and check all the plant rooms and anywhere where we think there's a possibility of a leak, just to make sure nothing's going wrong. So I would love to have been able to take you into some of the storage areas where we keep our most precious artefacts like the Gutenberg and the Venerable Bede. Um, unfortunately, that's beyond my purview. Um, we keep those things under extremely tight lock and key. I can bring you and show you some of our weirder artefacts though, which is, um, so a legal deposit mission, as I've explained, entails that we have to take everything whether we want it or not. Sometimes books come in, children's literature in particular, which have got toys with them and things strapped to the front. We have to keep all that stuff as well. So we're in a room here now in the uh, northwest basement and in front of you you can see shelves upon shelves of Mr. Men toys, flags of the world, jigsaw, puzzle, crayons, magic card tricks, planes, you name it. So yeah, I believe I'm right in saying the catalogues refer to the, or the collection management professionals refer to these as problems. <laughs> because obviously, yeah, it can be a bit problematic storing crayons and but but it's all part of the book. I believe it's what you'd refer to as code ecology. The book is the artifact, and our job is to ensure that this, um, what do you got there? I've got um, Mini Soft Shapes Toy Town. It's a small sort of foam book. The busy elf builds, the drummer boy plays. Is anyone actually requesting this stuff? Uh, this stuff, I'm confident in saying this stuff isn't catalogued for collection yet. So if I particularly if I wanted iPad for dummies, I wouldn't be able to find it that easily. Cause it no, be apparently not. No, I'm afraid yeah, if you want uh, the Mummy and Baby Jungle book, um, you're going to have to wait a few years for it to become a historic item or uh, or Penny Pineapple Fairy, a yummy scented storybook. I'm going to have to fi f locate that elsewhere. <laughs> We're in the, the lift that serves the library tower now, 17 floors in all, and as you'll see, it's just books all the way up. And you'll be able to see with your own eyes and hopefully confirm for your, for your listeners that uh, the, the stories aren't true, the pornography is not kept in the tower. Where is it kept? No comment. It's the highest possible point, is it? This highest is possible a, point. This is almost the highest possible point, yeah. So you're in the very apex uh, roof and you can see the roof around you uh, of the tower here. Uh, there's a little chimney away to my right. There is a, a flue, a chimney running the full 48 metre height of the tower from the boiler house where we started our journey earlier. And are you both okay with heights? Yeah. yeah. 
Right? Well, very briefly, poke our heads out at the bottom of the flagpole and you'll be able to get the best view in Cambridge. Oh, fantastic.